0: Good morning, guys. It is good to see you. It is good to start our week in worship, and I am grateful that you've chosen to start your week in worship with us. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bible. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. Now, if you didn't bring a Bible, we always have them available for you on the way into the worship space. We tried to train the greeters up front. We were working with them today to make sure that everybody that comes in gets a Bible. That's important every week, but it's especially important this week because we're going to start in Genesis chapter 37, and we are going to make our way through the rest of the book of Genesis as we come to the conclusion this week and next of our series on the attributes of God. We spent the last several weeks surveying the, the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, where God first makes himself known to us. And we've seen who God is and what it is that sets him apart. And we've started this series and we've continued throughout this series with one goal in mind, that every Sunday as we gather together around the word of God, we wanted to stand in awe of God so they would change the way we live today. I don't know about you, but I've learned a lot about God as I prepared uh, this series. I've learned that God is infinite. He is incomprehensible. He is beyond our imagination. So we stand in awe of him and just are amazed at who he is. I have learned that he is self-existent. He did not create us because he needed us, but he created us because he loved us. And he is eternal. He's always been and he'll always be. He is gracious and good. We learned some theological terms like God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere, all the time, fully present. And he is omniscient. He sees everything, and he knows everything. Each and every one of these attributes has kind of blown my mind, and I hope in some way it has uh, led you to a greater understanding of who God is and his capability to lead you. But each of the attributes that we've spent time studying serve as building blocks for the attribute we're going to study today And that is the attribute of God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign, which means God is in complete control. I think this is one of the attributes of God that is most awe-inspiring, if not the most awe-inspiring. At the same time, it's got to be one of the most confusing attributes. Like it's awe-inspiring because we admire control. Does anyone else like admire control or we long for control? Like I long to be in control. And then there's just people that I expect are fully in control all the time, like pilots on airplanes. Every time I get on a plane, I just take for granted that a pilot is, is in complete control of the airplane. We've added a a pilot to our community group, and so half the community group text that we have going is about pilots. And my wife, though 99.999% of airplanes land safely where they're supposed to go, she has an uncanny ability for finding the 0.01% of planes that just fall out of the sky. Now I get it, like if you're going to travel, you don't want to see any planes falling out of the sky, but she will always text the group saying, say, can you please explain to me what happened in this? And she, it was like a foreign aircraft that was from World War II, it's not something to worry about. But I say that Because even the people that we trust most because they seemingly are always in control can fail us from time to time. And so when we see this attribute of God that he is in complete control, it causes us to stand in awe. It's also confusing because if God is in complete control, it kind of makes us wonder like where we fit into the equation. Like do we get a say in how we live and how we influence and affect our life? And we'll see that unfold here in a minute. But I want to share with you right up front uh, R.C. Sproul's quote on the sovereignty of God. He tries to to, uh, capture for us with this picture. He says, If there is one single molecule in the universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. And what he's saying is, if God is not in complete control, then we cannot trust the promises of God. But if God is in complete control, we can trust that everything that God says is going to come to fruition will in fact happen. That God is good, and that everything that comes from God is good, and God is in control to bring good in this world. Job in the scriptures would say it this way. As he thinks about God, he says, I know that you, God, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, that God is in complete control. So we could start from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation and everything in between and see a, a picture of God's sovereignty, that he is in complete control. But one of the stories that I think captures this attribute of God better than any is the story of of Joseph. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 37, that's where we're going to start. And just as we get started, I want to be very clear. I know decorations are going up all over the place, but this is not the Christmas Joseph. Come back in two weeks and we'll talk about the Christmas Joseph. This is Old Testament Joseph, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, right? The patriarchs of the, New Te- of the Old Testament covenant. Um, and in fact, like, even as we get started, we're going to see God's sovereignty in the story of Joseph. But if you are anything like me, like I hesitate to call it the story of Joseph because if you grew up in church, like I grew up in church, and you went to Sunday school like I went to Sunday school, you saw this story plastered on felt boards. Anyone remember those things? Like maybe you can remember back to your grandma took you to Sunday school at some point early in your life, and they roll out this felt board, and they take this colorful guy in a coat, and they plaster it on a felt board. And for some reason, as exciting as that was, and they stuck with us as they stuck to the felt board, it kind of instilled in the back of our mind that they're just stories, But the story of Joseph was a real story lived by a real man with a real pursuit of God. And so as we start this story, we're going to kind of survey the scene. I want us to keep in mind that Joseph was a real man experiencing the sovereignty of God. We're introduced to him in Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. It says this. It says, Jacob, which was Joseph's father, lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. A lot of backstory there. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph our character for today, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billa and Zippa, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. And so as we're introduced to Joseph, we see that Joseph lived at home with his family, which was normal for the day. And at the start of the story, he's 17 years old. Keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to see his life unfold before our eyes. But when we're introduced to Joseph, he's 17 years old. I'm not sure that's the most important thing in these two verses, though. We also see that Joseph was the second youngest son of a bunch of brothers. His father had a lot of sons and... Joseph is a tattletale. Did you catch that in the Bible? Like, we're introduced to this hero of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, this great patriarch of the faith, the story we like to look back at. But when we first meet him, he's like a 17-year-old snotty kid who goes and tells on his brothers. It says a bad report of them was brought to their father. Joseph went out to the field, saw their brothers goofing off instead of watching the flocks, and he comes back and he tells on them. So as you can expect, it didn't go well with Joseph. Verse three says, now Israel, which was Jacob, his father, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. So Joseph's dad didn't help much. You know, Joseph's like the the young kid who's determined to always tell the truth, which means telling on his brothers, not gaining favor. But his dad doesn't help the situation because he's picked Joseph as a favorite. Now, I'm not sure. This isn't like a parenting sermon. I'm not sure if as a parent, you should pick a favorite. Parents, do you guys have a favorite, kid? Like, I didn't think so, but the more I think about my youngest brother growing up, the more I see the Joseph story unfolding. Like, um, But the worst thing is, like, if you have a favorite, maybe don't tell everybody that he is your favorite, right? Joseph's dad made him a coat of many colors just for him and put it on him so everywhere he went, everyone would know that he was the favorite son. And of course, Joseph wore the coat everywhere he went. Verse four says, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This is like the classic example of if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Just plot a way to kill your brother. That's later in the story. It says verse five, now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And you can see why, because he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. So he gathers his brothers around and says, I want you to tell you about this dream that I had last night. He said to them, uh, behold, which means like, pay attention. We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Basically saying to their younger brother, are you going to be in charge of us someday? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. But that didn't stop Joseph. And so then he dreamed another dream. He didn't learn his lesson. So he gathered his brothers around again in verse 9 and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father even rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his fathers kept this saying in mind. And so Joseph has these two dreams. Two dreams with the same message that his older brothers would bow down to him someday. And you can imagine how well that went over. We'll see how the story unfolds if you're reading it for the first time. It did not go over well as we might expect. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But here's what stands out to me is that Joseph had a dream from God about how his life would go. Joseph had a dream from God about how his life would go. He had no idea how he would get there, but he knew that God had given him a dream for his life. And it kind of begs the question, as we read this story, do we have a dream from God about what God is going to do in our life? And you don't have to like raise your hand or think about it, but, like, but think about it with me. Like, Do you have a dream from God about how your life is going to go? And it might not be some dream where your siblings are going to gather around you at Thanksgiving and bow down to you, but it might be a dream that God is going to use you to raise a family someday, and that you're going to influence and affect your family so that they will know and love God. And that's always been your dream. Or maybe it's a dream that you're going to build a business and you're going to build a career and you're going to do it so you can be generous to benefit the kingdom of God and kingdom work. And you don't know how it's going to happen, but you believe that's the dream that God has given you. Or maybe it's that you're going to be in ministry and you don't know what that looks like and you don't even see the way to get there, but you just believe that God has given you a dream that your life is going to be a life of ministry. Do you have a dream that God has given you? Here's what we see is that you don't have to know how God is going to accomplish it. In fact, I don't know if we ever really know how he's going to accomplish it. But when you know what God is calling you to, and more importantly, you know that God is in control, you can follow God wherever he leads. I think it's significant. Even though Joseph might not have handled it well with his brothers, he had a dream for what God was going to do in his life. I can I've shared my story many times, but I, I had a dream when I was in like first grade that I was gonna be in ministry. And like I knew that's weird and you don't have to tell me it's weird, because everyone growing up always told me it was weird. Like, hey what do you want to be? I want to be a police officer, firefighter, I want to be a preacher. Like, most kids were like, what's a preacher? And uh, but I was like, this is what I wanted. I had no idea what it would look like. I kinda had some uh, suspicions because I'd seen other people go before me and so I stayed close to church and I was active and in a church and youth group and ministry and Bible college. And I started doing internships and got a youth ministry. I had no idea the way that God would use us and our family to start a church to serve the east side of Orlando. But from the very beginning, I had a dream. And I always felt like that was weird. But the more I look at the story, the more I see that God is often giving us glimpses of what he wants to accomplish if we will trust that he's in control. Joseph knew that God was calling him to something special. And I think he knew that God was in control, but he certainly didn't start the way he thought it would. After this, we're going to just kind of fast forward through a few scenes. His father sends him out into the field to check on his brothers as they're tending the flock. And as his brothers see him coming toward them, wearing the coat of many colors, representative of his father's favoritism, they want to kill him. In verse 18, says, They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then uh, we will say, A fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. And so, like, you think you have family problems? Like, is anyone nervous about, like, Thanksgiving? You know, maybe you got some family coming into town. That you're, that's not your favorite people in the world. You haven't spoken to them since, like, last Thanksgiving. I guarantee it's not as bad as Joseph's family. Like, they see Joseph coming from far away, and his brothers are trying to figure out how they can take him out. Reuben, his oldest brother kind of speaks up and he interrupts. He says, maybe we shouldn't kill him. Maybe we should just like throw him in a pit. And like Reuben thinks, I can sneak back later and pick him out of the pit when no one's watching. So they throw him in a pit, they go and have lunch, and then they see some slave traders coming by. And one of his other brothers says, you know what, we've got this guy down in a pit. It doesn't really do us any good to kill him. We get nothing for killing our brother. What if we just sold our brother? And so they take him out of the pit and they sell him for 20 pieces of silver to some slave traders who take him all the way to Egypt. Verse 36 says, Meanwhile, the Midianites have sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. And the story starts to unfold relatively quickly. But as we think about it through the lens of the sovereignty of God, it's interesting to me the way that God will move his people into position to be the people he's called us to be. Like as Joseph is dreaming this dream, and he's thinking about someday when his brothers are going to bow down to him and everything that's going to surround that. I don't know if he thought that it would come on the other end of being sold into slavery. But nonetheless, his brothers, they take him, they throw him into a pit, they sell him into slavery, and God uses those circumstances to move him into position to be the person that he had called him to be, that God is in control all the time, even if we don't understand the way he's at work. We're going to skip chapter 38 altogether. It's kind of a, a whole other story interjected in there. But as we pick it up in chapter 39, verse 1, we see Joseph enslaved in Egypt. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him, bought him rather from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed at his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him an overseer of his house, and he put him in charge of all that he had. From the time he made him an overseer in his house over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house." And I can't help but think about it as we read the story, like this story could not possibly be unfolding the way Joseph thought it would. Like he's being blessed, but his blessing is being given to someone else, his master who bought him for 20 pieces of silver and put him in charge of his house. And, and he's at work, God is at work through Joseph, but not benefiting Joseph. But still, I think Joseph knew that God was the one at work And that guy was in control. How do I know that? Because Joseph remained consistent and committed to his convictions. I think it's easy, often, when God gives us a dream about how he's going to use us and the good he's going to bestow upon us and the way we're going to influence and affect the people around us to to pick up and follow God. And if something doesn't go right from the start, that's okay. We understand that God is in control. But here it's like one thing after another. His brothers beat him up. They throw him into a pit. They pull him out of the pit. They sell him into slavery. The slavery. Uh, the slave traders sell him to somebody else. Potiphar takes him in as a slave. Now he's a slave in a household with no rights for himself. And Potiphar puts him in charge of things. And God begins to bless him, and Joseph's kind of excited, but at the same time, temptations are going to continue to come. We know the story, or maybe you've heard the story of Potiphar's wife. Joseph catches her eye, and she tries to sleep with him. He says, there's no way I can do that. I would sin against God. I would betray the trust of my master. And so he flees from her. But she grabs his robe as he runs, and she sells a story to her master that Joseph tried to take advantage of her. And so though he tried to do the right thing and was consistent in his convictions, Joseph is thrown into prison. And Joseph is in prison in Egypt. Verse, uh, or in, and the Lord continues to bless him even there. Even in prison, because God is in control, Joseph is put in charge of the prison. And he serves God faithfully in the prison. And so um, the end of 39 verses 21 to 23 says this, but the Lord is with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. It's interesting that in his sovereignty, God is with Joseph in the prison, that God is causing him to be successful wherever he goes as God prepares him for what is in store. But it does kind of beg the question as we see Joseph sitting in prison, do you ever feel like if God was really in control, things would go better than they currently are? And like, think about that, like you showed up, You're hearing a sermon on God's sovereignty. You believe in the sovereignty of God, but you know your circumstances too. And you just have this, like, this tension that you're trying to wrestle with. Like, if God is really in control, wouldn't things be going better for me than they currently are? And a flood of things come come to mind. Maybe school's not going as well as you hoped school would go, though you're working your tail off trying to do the best you can. Or maybe you've graduated from school and you don't have the job you were hoping for. It seems like, man, I know God and I believe God, but if God is in control, I'd be in a better circumstance than I currently am. Or maybe uh, relationally, your relationship isn't existent or it's not going the way you want it to. Or maybe your marriage is difficult. You just feel like, man, if God were in control, surely things would be going better. Maybe you have health concerns or you've lost a loved one or you're afraid that your loved ones are going to lose you. And whatever the circumstances are, you look at the circumstances of your life and you know God is in control. But you wonder, if God is in control, wouldn't things go better? From where we sit, it would be hard for things to be any worse for Joseph. He was sold into slavery. He was tempted and yet chose to honor God. He was falsely accused. He was thrown into prison. Things are successful in the prison, but Joseph is still in chains. One of the things I've learned is that God often uses our most difficult days to deepen our relationship with him. That it's in these days that God is developing the character of Joseph for the calling that would come in the future. While he was in prison, two of Pharaoh's officials are thrown into prison with him. While they're in prison, both of the officials, the cupbearer and the baker, both have dreams. And Jacob, or sorry, Joseph, rather, hears the dreams and he thinks, James, I'm, I'm pretty good with dreams. And uh, they, he comes to him and says, you need me to help you interpret these dreams? And the cupbearer shares his dream with him. And Joseph says, I've got good news. Your dream means that in three days, Pharaoh is not going to be mad at it anymore. He's going to lift you up out of prison and restore to you to the position that you were in before at his right hand. And when you're restored, just remember me. The baker says, well, I've also got a dream. It's kind of similar. And and Joseph hears the dream, and he says, your dream is kind of similar. It also represents something that's going to take place in three days. But Pharaoh's not going to lift you up from here. He literally says, Pharaoh's going to lift up your head from your body. Pharaoh's Pharaoh's going to hang you. Sure enough, both things take place just like Joseph says. But the cupbearer, when he's restored to Pharaoh's right hand, forgets Joseph. Genesis chapter 40, verse 23, and the first verse of the next chapter says this, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him. And I've circled this in my Bibles. I've studied it in the past. It says, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and Pharaoh starts talking about his dream, and the cupbearer says, oh, man, there's this guy I used to know when you threw me in prison. And every time I read this story, I might be fooling myself, but I think I could kind of keep up with Joseph to this point. Like, I'm definitely not perfect in the way I handle my life or my calling, but I've got this vision about what God wants to accomplish, and I've never been sold into slavery, but there's been difficult days along the way, and yet I've seen God work through me and in spite of me and the different places that he's called me. But I would wonder if, like, I was like Joseph, and I'm in prison, falsely accused, still doing the work of God, And I thought God had provided me a way out, but I had to wait for two more years. I think this is where I'd get discouraged and start to doubt. Like, I think this is probably the place where I would start to wonder if God was really in control. I like to think I could keep my confidence in God through the discouraging days, but as they dragged on and on and on, I wonder if I would start to question the sovereignty of God. What about you? Have you ever felt forgotten about has it ever caused you to question whether or not God is, in fact in complete control? Yet Joseph is faithful, and God provides an opportunity for Joseph. Chapter 41 verse 14 says this. It says, "Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, so he's had this dream and quickly brought him out of the pit. And he shaved and he shaved and changed his clothes and washed the prison smell off of himself. He came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, "I've had a dream, and there's no one who in, who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it." Then Joseph answered Pharaoh, "This is it not? It is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer." Now that's one of those verses that we might just kind of read right past. But Joseph is presented with an opportunity to take control of his story. Because when the cupbearer goes to Pharaoh and he says, hey, there was this guy at that time he threw me in prison and I had this dream and he told me about the dream. I remember him, you want me to bring him up? And he says, Pharaoh says, yeah, bring him up. And Pharaoh brings him up and they, they, they clean him up, they give him a shower, they shave, they wash the prison smell off of him. And then Pharaoh says, hey, Joseph, I hear you can tell me what my dream is. And Joseph, who's been in prison for a few years, could come and say, like, I am really great and take control of his story. But what does he do? He says, it's not me. It's God. This is Joseph's moment to take control, but he gives God credit. Which if God is in complete control, if God is sovereign, then we don't have to take matters into our own hands. We don't have to take matters into our hands because we can trust that God is in control. In fact, we're going to skip ahead, Savannah, for the sake of time, because there's a lot here, um, to chapter 42, verse one-ish, somewhere in there. We'll find it. We'll t- catch, catch up with it. There's a lot going on. I just want to summarize it for you. So Pharaoh has this dream, and he has two dreams, actually. He says, I have this dream of these two different cows. There's like seven fat cows, and there's seven slender cows, and the seven slender cows eat the seven fat cows. I don't know what that means. And there's seven ears of corn, and there's seven uh, dry stalks, and seven stalks eat the seven ears. I don't know what that means. And Joseph says, these dreams are from God. God is doing something here, but God has given you warning. There's going to be seven years of prosperity in the land of Egypt, seven years of bountiful harvest, and then there's going to come seven lean years. And so if I were you, Pharaoh, I would save diligently. I'd appoint someone to save diligently during the seven prosperous years so that during the seven lean years, there will still be food for the people living in Egypt. And Pharaoh says, that sounds like a good idea. He kind of surveys the kingdom. He wants to see if there's anyone that can be found to manage the task, and it doesn't take him really very long to recognize that Joseph is the man for the job. And so he takes this man out of prison and he bestows upon him all the power of Egypt. In fact, it says he makes him second in command in Egypt. He reports only to Pharaoh. And Joseph begins to administer uh, the seven good years. He's bringing a portion of all of the crops into the storehouses. So when the seven lean years come, there'd be plenty of food. And sure enough, as soon as the seven lean years come upon the people of Egypt, they start looking to Pharaoh and then to Joseph for food. And they come and they buy grain from food. But it wasn't just Egypt that was affected by it. The entire world was affected by this drought. And so even Joseph's brothers find themselves hungry one day. And his dad and their dad says to them, why don't you go to Egypt And buy some food. Genesis 42, verse 1 through 3 says, When Jacob, Joseph's dad, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? Like, why stand around? We're starving here. And he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. And it's kind of this interesting story. In the next several chapters, Joseph just kind of fools around with his brothers because these 10 brothers come to buy grain from their brother, but they have no idea it's their brother. It's been 20 years since they sold him into slavery. He was kind of out of sight, out of mind. Slaves weren't treated very well in those days, so they assumed that Joseph was long gone. So they show up and they see this Egyptian ruler. Uh, and it's like if he went to a 20-year class reunion. No, they didn't recognize him at all. He looked totally different. And they have this, this interaction with him and they buy grain from him. And Joseph kind of fools around with him for the next several chapters. He kind of tricks them and tempts them and tests them. He's just trying to figure out what's going on with them. He asks to see his youngest brother and talks to his dad. And at one point, Joseph calls his brothers, though they do not recognize him, into his quarters. And they think at this point that he's this, this Egyptian official is going to wipe him out, that he's frustrated with them, that he's angry, that they keep coming to buy grain. Um, but instead, Joseph rolls out the red carpet. He provides a feast for them. And in Genesis chapter 45, he makes himself known to them. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And he asks, Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to to me, please. And they came near and they said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. then he says this, he says, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine that has been in the land these last two years, and there is gonna be five years more, that there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near to me. And your children and your children's children, your flocks, your herds, all that you have. And it's really this incredible story. And I spent 29 minutes telling you the story of Joseph so we could get to this point. That when Joseph looks back on his life, he sees that God was in complete control when Joseph looks back on his life and he sees the exciting dreams that he once had for his life, he sees them coming to fruition, but he had certainly no expectation for the way that God would bring them to be. He had no no expectation for the betrayal that he would have from his brothers, that he would be sold like a piece of property into slavery, that he would be bought by a man named Pharaoh, that he would serve him faithfully, yet would still be falsely accused, that he'd be thrown into prison and serve well there but be forgotten about until one day God would provide a way for him to be the second in command of the most powerful nation in the the world at that time. But when his brothers come to him, and Joseph starts to put in perspective all that has taken place, he sees God's fingerprints all over his circumstances. And he sees that God is in control, and he sees that God accomplished something in Jake, I'm sorry, in Joseph's life that Joseph could never have accomplished on his own that God truly accomplished immeasurably more. Joseph brings his entire family to Egypt. He takes care of them. his father is there for 17 more years. he passes away and when he passes away at the end of Genesis chapter 50, his brothers start to get a little nervous that maybe with their father's protection gone, Joseph will finally take it out on them for the evil they His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. And he says this He says, For I am in the place, if sorry, for am I in the place of God. He recognized that God was in control. In verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And I love the way the story ends. In fact, I'm not convinced that the entire story of Joseph isn't preserved for us just so this passage will make sense. That as he looks back at his life and he sees it all unfold, he recognizes that though his brothers intended to harm him, though they intended to get rid of him, though they inflicted evil upon him, God, who is sovereign over all of life circumstances, was in complete control. And he took everything that was intended for evil and he leveraged it for good, for his people and for the glory of God so that a few thousand years later, we would still be celebrating the sovereignty of God in this story. That God sent Joseph ahead to preserve life. And I can't read this story without thinking about what took place 2,000 years after this or 1,500 years after this in the story of Jesus. That when it seemed like everything was stacked against God, God was still in control. At the worst day from our perspective in human history, God turned around and leveraged for our good to preserve life. In fact, that's exactly what came to mind in the New Testament church in Acts chapter 4. And I want to end with this Acts chapter 4, verse 24. Jesus has been crucified on a cross. He's been buried in a tomb. He's been raised from the dead. He's poured out his spirit. He's ascended back to the Father's right hand. And the church is beginning to explode on the scene. But they're met with intense opposition. And they start to wonder, is God really in control? They're being beaten for their faith. They're meaning opposition for their preaching. But when the apostles come out of prison, being beaten for preaching, they say this, the church, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and said, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Why does it look like everything is opposed to you? And then they go on for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant, Jesus and as the new testament church in the early days of its existence looks at what's taking place they like joseph see that it seems like the circumstances of their life are stacked against them but still god is in control because god is sovereign and so they pray father would you make us more bold to proclaim the good news of the gospel of jesus as you bring your plan to fruition for the good of your people and the glory of God in this place. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. At the end of this series, as we stand in all of you, we can look back on the attributes of God stacked one on top of another and see your sovereignty. That you are in complete control all the circumstances of life. And yet, Father, in some way that is beyond our comprehension, you extend to us an invitation to follow you, to put our trust in you day in and day out, that we might experience the benefits of a God who is good and is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Father, I pray as we prepare to sing these final two songs as we think about who you are and what you reveal to us in your word, that you would just make yourself known to us through your Holy Spirit in a way that is convicting and encouraging and transforming. That, Father, today, this Sunday would be a Sunday where your word sinks in and it draws us close so that we can stand in awe of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stay in and sing.